This is Islanders Award Winners, a podcast examining seasons in which a New York Islander took home a major NHL award. I'm your host, Dan Saracini. Today, we'll remember goaltender Mark Fitzpatrick's battle against a career-threatening blood disease and his winning the 1992 Bill Masterton Trophy for dedication to hockey. Lighthouse Hockey is SB Nation's home for New York Islanders news and discussion. You can find all of our podcasts, including our flagship show, Islanders Anxiety, and Weird Islanders the Podcast, by searching Islanders Anxiety in any podcasting app of your choice. At patreon.com slash islandersanxiety, you can subscribe monthly to receive ad-free episodes, bonus podcasts, and more. And as always, thank you for listening. And now, on to Mark Fitzpatrick, Masterton Trophy, 1992. Going through something like this, I realize hockey is a big part of my life, but not the biggest part. Obviously, health is. Everything else is immaterial. My health and my family are what it really boils down to. As long as I've got those two, everything else will take care of itself. Mark Fitzpatrick, January 1991. The story of Mark Fitzpatrick's 1992 Masterton Trophy win really begins in 1989 and with one of the most emotional trades in Islanders history. Looking to strengthen their goaltending after acquiring superstar of all superstars Wayne Gretzky the previous summer, the Los Angeles Kings traded for Islanders goalie Kelly Rudy in late February 1989. The one-time heir apparent to icon Billy Smith, Rudy was a good, experienced goalie stuck on a last-place Islanders team that needed an infusion of young talent after years of prioritizing the present and making underwhelming draft picks. Rudy was stunned and hurt by the trade, but quickly came around to playing for a contender in Hollywood, alongside the greatest hockey player on earth. Meanwhile, on the other end of the country, Islanders GM Bill Torrey hoped that his gamble would pay off in the rebirth of a champion that had hit rock bottom. He said at the time, quote, I am fully aware of what I've given up. We were the best in the early 80s, and I'm looking to be the best in the early 90s. From Torrey's perspective, the centerpiece of the deal was the Kings' top goaltending prospect, Mark Fitzpatrick, who was acquired alongside young defenseman Wayne McBean. Veteran defenseman Doug Crossman would also come to the Islanders to complete the trade a little while later. But it was the lanky, fiery Fitzpatrick, winner of two Memorial Cups with the Medicine Hat Tigers in junior, and taken 27th overall by the Kings in 1988, that Tory was really betting on. Quote, We think Fitzpatrick is as good a prospect as there is for the future. Gretzky himself called the 20-year-old, quote, the best goalie in hockey. He wasn't just Fitzpatrick's teammate when he said that either. He and his wife, actress and dancer Janet Jones, were also Fitzpatrick's landlords for a little while. Fitzpatrick told Sports Illustrated's John Shire, quote, I've been living in a hotel in L.A. One day Wayne Gretzky comes up to me and says, Hey kid, bring your bags to the rink tonight. You're coming to live with me. Fitzpatrick went from crashing with the Great One to battling fellow rookie Jeff Hackett for playing time in the Islanders' crease. Fitzpatrick got into 10 games at the end of the 1988-89 season, going a modest 3-5-2 as a team that had started the decade winning four straight Stanley Cups missed the playoffs for the first time in 14 years. The 1989-90 season was where Fitzpatrick began to establish himself as an NHL goalie. He put together a 15-3-2 hot streak between November and February before hitting an 0-9-1 slump at the end of the season. In the end, he finished with a record of 19-19-5 
was seventh in the NHL with an 898 save percentage, and was tied for second with three shutouts with guys like Patrick Waugh and Andy Moog. They weren't all masterpieces, but given the wide-open style of play at the time, Mark Fitzpatrick looked like he had the talent and tenacity to help the Islanders win games. 7-7, the uh, Pens blew a lead and then came back, and then in overtime, let me go again. He's just, ooh, oh. Fitzpatrick with an enormous save. Then, watch this, Lemieux sets it up, and here's Bob Erie. Oh, saved oh. by Fitzpatrick, and what did that do? It spurred the Islanders on to greater things, because in the last 30 seconds, it's Trache going in, drops for Nyla. Nice pass here, score the veteran. Don Maloney scores in overtime, oh, and the Islanders beat Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh likes giving up eight goals a game, 8-7 the final. Jim, the story of this game was Mark Fitzpatrick, the Islanders' Toronto-born goaltender, was outstanding over the first 40 minutes, kept his team in the game, kept their playoff hopes alive. As a result, the Islanders win it by a count of 6-3. to three. Alongside the diminutive Glenn Healy, another former Kings goalie who signed with the Islanders as a free agent over the summer, the Islanders went 31-38-11 for 73 points, good enough for a fourth-place finish in the Patrick division. They made the playoffs in the final day of the season, and faced their arch-rivals, the New York Rangers, in the first round of the playoffs. Things went very badly, very quickly. In Game 1, star center Pat LaFontaine was felled by a hit from Rangers defenseman James Patrick and had to be stretchered off the ice to the vociferous jeers of the Garden faithful. The Islanders lost the game 2-1, but the ugliness was all anyone talked about. The hit on their star teammates sparked Islanders tough guys Mick Fakoda and Ken Baumgartner to start a melee that spilled over the benches and eventually included Fitzpatrick briefly locking up with Rangers starter Mike Richter. Not showing any class whatsoever. 
The losses of the series opener and their best offensive weapon threw the already undermanned Islanders completely off their game. They lost game two, five to two, and Fitzpatrick lost his cool, slashing forward Troy Millette in the stomach as he crashed the crease. On the power play, James Patrick shot from the point, sails by the screen, Mark Fitzpatrick, 3-2 Rangers. Moments later, off the faceoff, Kelly Kissio chips one to John O'Grotnik, and he beats Fitzpatrick for his second of the game, 4-2 Rangers. Then Fitzpatrick shows some frustration. With Troy Millette on his back in the crease, he jams the butt of a stick into Millette's midsection, and he is gone from the game. Glenn Healy replaced him, but nothing could replace the scoring tonight. The Rangers go on to win it over the Islanders tonight to take a 2-0 lead in that series, 5-2 the final there. Betsy? Fitzpatrick was ejected from the game, and Healy played the rest, then was in net for the Islanders' 4-3 overtime win in Game 3. But that would be their only victory. Fitzpatrick came in to mop up Game 4's 6-1 loss, then was pulled in Game 5 after giving up five goals through two periods. The Islanders made it close, but ended up losing 6-5 to drop the series in five games. Despite barely making the playoffs and the embarrassing flameout against their biggest rival, all was not lost for the Islanders. They had some intriguing young forwards, led by the electric LaFontaine. They still had defensive wizard Al Arbor behind the bench. And the Isles looked once again to be strong in the goaltending department, with Fitzpatrick, just 21 at the time, Healy, and Hackett, who was named the American Hockey League's playoff MVP after leading the Springfield Indians to a Calder Cup championship. By the beginning of the 1990-91 season, those feelings of hope would be all but extinguished. In September of 1990, the Islanders were on the West Coast to both finish their preseason and start the regular season, and the wheels were already falling off. They were without defenseman Jeff Norton and Vakoda, who were both suspended for separate incidents dating back to the playoffs the previous spring. Goalie Glenn Healy sustained a deep bone bruise in his ankle in an exhibition game against the Kings, and in their final exhibition game in Oakland, California against the Penguins, the Islanders lost 7 to nothing leaving them with a woeful 1-6-2 preseason record. All of that happened without the services of Pat LaFontaine, who was engaged in a contract dispute with the club. Although he wasn't being labeled as a genuine holdout by either his agent Don Meehan or by the Islanders, LaFontaine had made it public that he was unhappy in the only NHL uniform that he had ever worn. It was reported at the time that the center, who had 51 goals and 54 assists the season before, was making $450,000 a year at a time when players of his stature were hitting the million-dollar mark. LaFontaine returned to the club after the preseason ended, meeting them in California and addressing reporters saying, quote, I felt obligated and committed to my coach, Al Arbor, the coaching staff, the players, and the Islander fans, and that's the reason I'm back here playing. It wasn't the most ringing endorsement ever, but for now, having an unhappy LaFontaine was better than none. That laundry list would be a lot for one team to overcome before a season even started. And yet the Islanders' situation was about to get much, much worse. On September 29, 1990, while flying west for their final preseason games, Mark Fitzpatrick's hands, arms, and feet had swelled up substantially. He had noticed a little swelling after an exhibition game a week earlier, but had not told anyone for fear of jeopardizing his chance at being named the team's starter. By the time he was preparing for practice at the Forum that afternoon, his feet had reportedly ballooned almost to the size of footballs, and Fitzpatrick felt he wouldn't even be able to put his skates on. 
who was checked into Sentinella Hospital in Los Angeles and began an ordeal which Fitzpatrick would come to call, quote, the worst five days of my life. He was probed and prodded by doctors, had x-rays, a bone scan, and a biopsy that removed a piece of his forearm, leaving a scar two inches long. There was no quick answer to what ailed him. He had no fever and retained a healthy appetite. He was told by doctors that he could have, quote, anything from an infection to a virus. Meanwhile, the swelling continued into his fingers, which had become so inflated that he could not close or extend them. After nearly a full week, there was still no diagnosis for the goalie, who had a million thoughts running through his brain, few of them good. Quote, lying there in that hospital bed, knowing there was something drastically wrong with my body, not sleeping, just trying to understand what might have happened. Finally, on the eve of the Islanders' season opener against the Kings in Los Angeles, doctors had a name for Fitzpatrick's pain. Eosinophilia myalgia syndrome, or EMS, a very rare blood infection. There were a reported 1,500 cases in the U.S. in 1989, leading to 27 deaths. In addition to massive swelling, other symptoms of EMS include rashes, breathing complications, coughing, and muscle pain. There is no known cure. Fitzpatrick would become intimately familiar with EMS over the years, but at the current moment, shots of prednisone, cortisone-like drug, reduced the swelling. The change was so significant that the goalie felt he'd be released from the hospital in a few days, return to Long Island, and resume skating by the next week. This early optimism would become just another cruel layer to Fitzpatrick's excruciating journey. On October 4th, 1990, while Mark Fitzpatrick lay in a hospital bed about a dozen blocks away, the Islanders lost to the Kings 4-1 at the Forum in their season opener. The starting goalie was Glenn Healy, who played valiantly despite his lingering ankle injury. In an ironic twist, the winning goalie for LA that night was of course Kelly Rudy, the former Islander who had been traded for Fitzpatrick and who had supplanted Healy in the Kings' crease. Rudy came within one late gaffe of starting the season with a shutout against his old club. Healy started the next game in Minnesota two nights later, also a loss. The next night in Chicago, the Islanders finally picked up their first win of the season behind 44 saves by Jeff Hackett, the top prospect who just a week prior had been the team's third stringer. By the end of their home opener against the Pittsburgh Penguins, Hackett would be the only healthy goalie on the Islanders' roster. Healy, who had started that eventual 6-4 loss, would suffer another injury on the same ankle that had been hurt on the West Coast. To make matters worse, LaFontaine sustained a hamstring injury on the first shift of the game, and the Islanders blew a 2-0 lead, which led to Al Arbor saying, quote, I think half our team had stage fright. All of this was happening a world away from Mark Fitzpatrick. The prednisone shots reduced the swelling enough to allow him to leave Sentinella Hospital. But he didn't meet his teammates on Long Island, and he didn't resume skating. Instead, he returned to his family home in Kitimak, British Columbia, and would continue treatments with specialists in the Vancouver area while living in his parents' home. Just because the doctors had named his infection did not mean that a quick cure was coming, and the unknown future was weighing heavily on the 21-year-old. In a Newsday feature on Fitzpatrick that ran the day before Halloween 1990, his mother Vi said, quote, The doctors can't give him any positive feedback. He's down in the dumps. He wanted the doctors to tell him he'd be okay in two months or six weeks, but there's no timetable for this. Indeed, the EMS diagnosis was not like a regular hockey injury that could be repaired, reset, or rehabbed in a few weeks. 
Not only could doctors not give Fitzpatrick a hard date for a return, they couldn't even determine how he contracted the disease in the first place. The case had been brought to the New York State Department of Health, who were researching the connection between EMS and L-tryptophan, a dietary supplement that had been banned in the United States the year prior. L-tryptophan is technically an artificially manufactured amino acid that could be found in vitamins and supplements used to treat insomnia, depression, and other conditions. L-tryptophan wasn't the only cause of EMS, but unrelated instances of the disease were even more rare. Six companies were known to sell supplements with L-tryptophan, but only one, Japan-based Showa Denko, had a traceable link between tainted specimens and EMS patients. For Vi Fitzpatrick, it was a lot to process. She told Newsday, quote, I've never seen him take a Tylenol. Mark would later tell Sports Illustrated, quote, I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to play again. The doctors just told me to go home and rest, let time take its course. It was really depressing. Back on Long Island, things were a different kind of depressing. The Islanders had only won three of their first 12 games of the season. At one point, they dropped four straight, with the last two being an 8-1 loss to New Jersey, followed by an 8-2 loss to Montreal. Jeff Hackett, who had taken over the net after Glenn Healy's ankle injury, also fell to the injury bug, straining a groin in the game against the Habs. He was replaced by 23-year-old George Maniluk, who mopped up in both routes and started the next two, a 5-2 win over the Flyers, and then an 8-3 loss to the Penguins. Al Arbor darkly joked, quote, People said, what are you going to do with three goalies? Now we're on our fourth. During the debacle in Pittsburgh, that number of goalies would grow to five. Danny Lorenz replaced the ineffective Maniluk in the loss, then started the following game, a 4-1 home loss to the Kings. Lorenz was the youngest of the quintet of goalies at just 21, and those two defeats would be his only two games of the season. Maniluk wouldn't see the NHL again after his four-game run. Healy returned from his injury just in time to start a 3-2 win over the Rangers, and he and Hackett would help the Islanders string together four straight wins and a five-out-of-six streak in early November. By the time the calendar flipped to December, the Islanders were a sad 9-14-2. You don't have to be Al Arbor to know that nine wins and five goalies is not how you want to start a season. While the Islanders were stuck in the mud, Mark Fitzpatrick was gaining traction in his fight against EMS. He celebrated his 22nd birthday on November 13th at his parents' home in British Columbia, or in his words, quote, a stone's throw from Alaska. Fitzpatrick was taking his meds, doing physical therapy, and seeing palpable improvement in his condition. Doctors in Vancouver had doubled his dosage of prednisone, as well as giving him calcium pills to counteract possible side effects, such as cataracts and softened bones. A key component of all of his treatments was keeping a positive attitude, and Fitzpatrick felt confident that he could make it back because, quote, I'm still young and I'm still strong. Although his bones felt like, quote, elastic bands that won't stretch, he was feeling good enough to play some light street hockey with local kids. When he wasn't doing that, he was watching his NHL teammates play through his satellite dish TV setup. Fitzpatrick told Newsday, quote, I'm still an Islander. My heart is still there. There's a chance I'm going to be watching them for a long time. I'll be an armchair fan. His spirits got a huge lift when he joined the Islanders during their Western Canada swing through Edmonton, Calgary, and Vancouver. Teams 1 and 2 record in those games, as well as the unanswerable questions about how he contracted EMS or when he'd be able to return full-time, 
were secondary to Fitzpatrick's tagging along like just one of the guys again. He even got to sign some autographs for fans who were also no doubt happy to see him up and around. Quote, I miss the game, but I also miss being with the guys. Everyone wanted to know how long I'm going to be out. For now, there was no answer to that question. But by early December, doctors told Fitzpatrick that he had improved his condition by 50%. They were able to now reduce his prescription of prednisone and add cross-country skiing to his physical regimen. Dr. Andrew Chalmers, a specialist from Vancouver General who had been working with the goalie, said that the chance of Fitzpatrick's case of EMS being fatal had passed. Chalmers told the Vancouver province, quote, He's had it a long enough time that I would say that that outcome is very unlikely. There are reasons to think Mark will be a positive responder. As a way to lift his spirits and break out of confinement, Fitzpatrick booked a 10-day cruise through the Caribbean. It would be a final luxurious break before the pro athlete was finally able to get back to what he did best. On New Year's Eve, 1990, the Islanders beat the Quebec Nordiques 6-3 behind Derek King's four goals. It was a rousing end to what had been, all things considered, a pretty crappy year. They had snuck into the playoffs and got demolished by their biggest rivals. They unceremoniously released Brian Trottier, the franchise's all-time leading scorer, and their current leading scorer, Pat LaFontaine, wanted a new contract. The scorers weren't scoring, their defense wasn't consistent, and their goalie of the future was battling a career-threatening blood disease. At the start of 1991, the last-place Islanders weren't mathematically eliminated from the playoffs, but they would need a miracle or two over the second half of the season to get there. That same month, they did finally get some good news. Mark Fitzpatrick made his first public appearance at Nassau Coliseum during a 3-2 win over the Flyers on January 5, 1991. Goalie had been staying active back home, doing his cross-country skiing and riding a stationary bike, and was given the go-ahead by his doctors in British Columbia to return to Long Island, where he would get checked out at University Hospital at Stony Brook. Fitzpatrick hoped for a good report from the New York docs, and that was exactly what he got. As soon as he was cleared for light practice with the team, he bolted to the Islanders' practice facility at Kaniog Park in Hicksville and hit the ice. His teammates, quote, vigorously pounded the ice with their sticks, extending the hockey fraternity's version of a standing ovation, according to Newsday's Mark Herman. It had taken almost four months for Fitzpatrick to skate with his teammates and coaches again, and he couldn't be happier. This was a massive change from where his mind was during the darkest times of his absence. Quote, The first couple of weeks, there was no progress at all. I feared the worst. I heard people had died from EMS, and it certainly was scary. You try not to think about it, but you can't help thinking about it. When I was stuck in the hospital, I was saying, why me? I could be asking myself that question for the rest of my life, but I won't. I realize it's not totally beaten by any means, but there is one foot in the door. Before, I was wondering if I was ever going to skate again this year, or ever. Just being out there is a real positive step. The battle to get back into hockey was paramount, but Fitzpatrick was about to get into a different kind of conflict. A few days after his first practice of the season, Fitzpatrick sued Showa Denko Company of Japan, their U.S. subsidiary, and Nature's Bounty, a local supplement distributor based on Long Island, for $180 million for manufacturing and distributing a contaminated dietary supplement the goalie claimed resulted in his contracting EMS. Supplements contain the tainted L-tryptophan, 
that had been directly linked to eosinophilia myalgia syndrome in multiple patients across the country. The suit also claimed that the Islanders had unknowingly given the gully the substance as part of his training regimen in an over-the-counter dietary supplement meant to increase his stamina over the course of a grueling NHL season. Fitzpatrick told Newsday that he had started taking the supplement just after being traded to the Islanders in February 1989 and continued right up to the point where he was first hospitalized with swelling in September of 1990. L-tryptophan had been banned in the U.S. in 1989, but the team's old supply of supplements still contained the ingredient. New Islanders trainer Ed Tabersky said no other players were taking L-tryptophan at the time. While Dr. Lee Kaufman, Fitzpatrick's physician at University Hospital, was unsure if the team's supplements had directly caused the onset of EMS, the goalie's lawyer, Paul Simonson, was more certain. Quote, he is simply another victim of a manufacturing scandal, albeit a very high-profile victim. A highly promising career has very likely been cut short because of the gross negligence of large companies concerned more with profit than the safety of their customers. Showadenko had been sued by other parties due to the contaminated L-tryptophan in their products, with Simonson's firm handling 25 such cases. The Fitzpatrick case against Showadenko would drag on for many months, but the goalie let his lawyers handle all that. He had other plans. After getting the go-ahead to practice from doctors and getting his feet wet again on the ice, Fitzpatrick was assigned by the Isles to the Capital District Islanders their American Hockey League team in upstate Troy, New York. The goalie was slated to start an upcoming game against the Adirondack Red Wings. On February 16, 1991, Fitzpatrick was officially cleared by the Islanders to play again, and the team left the decision of when to play up to him. Over the next month, Fitzpatrick would play a dozen games for the CD Islanders, putting together a record of three wins, seven losses, and two ties, with a save percentage of 871 and a goals against average of 3.84. Those might seem like modest numbers, but given where he was over the previous seven months, they represented a monumental achievement for him. Just weeks before starting games in the AHL, doctors were still unsure if he would ever play hockey again. Through medication, rehab, and a positive mental attitude, Fitzpatrick was able to lead his team onto the ice one more time, and he felt it was just the beginning told Newsday, quote, I feel I'm 80 to 90% healthy. I was hoping to be better than that by this point. He also said he would talk to the brass at the big club about possibly playing games in Europe over the summer in order to get even more ice time. The Capital District Islanders were not good that season, and they were in last place before, during, and after Fitzpatrick's run there. But that was nothing compared to the abject chaos happening with the parent club. At the start of February 1991, the Islanders were 18, 28, and 7, nine points out of fifth place in the Patrick Division, and looked to be going nowhere. The season had been such an ordeal that Coach Al Arbor was expected to step down after its conclusion. Arbor, 58 at the time, had spent 16 total seasons behind the Islanders' bench, leading them to their incredible run of four Stanley Cups and 19 straight playoff series victories. When asked directly, Arbor was cagey as always, telling Newsday, quote, I know what I'm going to do at the end of the season, but I'm not going to tell you right now. I have to speak to other people in the organization first, and then when the season's over, I'll have something to say. I don't want to open a can of worms right now. Beyond the losses and the injuries and the possible retirement of their legendary coach, 
their star player now officially wanted to be traded. In mid-February 1991, center Pat LaFontaine officially requested a move to another team. The Islanders' only marquee name and unquestioned star on the ice had grown frustrated in waiting for a renegotiated contract and instead wanted out. At some point, his beef with the Islanders became less about money and more about the direction of the team under absentee owner John Pickett, who was extremely reluctant to shell out big contracts, even to the guys who deserved them. LaFontaine and agent Don Meehan informed Islanders GM Bill Torrey that their money was no good and that the center, who had scored 47, 45, and 54 goals in the previous three seasons, did not want an acrimonious split with the club as some previous stars had experienced. Fans hung banners at Nassau Coliseum imploring Team Brass to just pay LaFontaine what he wanted, but management held firm, which further alienated their best player. To make matters even more complicated, Torrey held a press conference on February 26th announcing that Pickett had put the team up for sale. While that might have been positive news for anyone hoping that the Islanders would find a new, more attentive owner, instead of a guy who lived in Florida all year, it would be a long, long time before the franchise would find a committed buyer, and the sale would be just another layer of dysfunction on top of all the others. The once-dominant club had fallen completely into disarray, but there was a chance that it could end on at least one positive note. By mid-March, it looked like Mark Fitzpatrick was ready to take the ice in an NHL game again. His dozen AHL games had shown Capital District Islanders coach Butch Goring that the goalie could handle the workload of the pro game. Fitzpatrick had briefly stopped taking his prednisone and had experienced a flare-up of swelling, but a return to the program got it under control again. After discussions between Goring and Al Arbor, Fitzpatrick was officially recalled by the big club allowing him to move out of his hotel room in Troy, New York, and back to Long Island. Arbor wasn't sure which of the Islanders' final games Fitzpatrick would get into, but just having a chance to play for the Islanders again was something that didn't seem possible months earlier. Quote, Doctors didn't come out and tell me I wouldn't be playing this year, but they didn't say I would be either. The goalie admitted that playing in an NHL arena again would give him, quote, chills up and down my spine and said that staying positive was the key to a quick recovery. Quote, It's amazing how the mind works on the body. I've been saying lots of prayers and keeping very optimistic. Day after day, you have to tell yourself you're going to get better. The inspiring return of their young goalie phenom was a welcome break for the Islanders in a disastrous season. After a 6-2 loss to Washington, Arbor lamented, quote, We have so many guys trying to point fingers, they don't have time to play. Forward Randy Wood hinted that, quote, some things were said that shouldn't have been said, a great sign that the disharmony had reached a critical point. Meanwhile, Mark Fitzpatrick was so keyed up to start an NHL game again that he wasn't sure if he was going to get any sleep the night before. That start came on March 23, 1991, six months after he was hospitalized with massive swelling thanks to a then-mysterious illness. Mark Fitzpatrick was playing goal in the NHL again. The Islanders lost to the Blues 3-2 at Nassau Coliseum, but the score was meaningless. The fact that the 22-year-old goalie was able to return to the pro game, play as well as he did, was almost miraculous. He was given an overwhelming ovation from the crowd even before the game and made 27 saves against a pretty high-powered Blues offense. He was beaten on goals by Rod Brindamore, Dan Quinn, and Brett Hull, who scored his 81st goal of what would be a Hart Trophy winning season. 
game against St. Louis. The defeat to the Blues wasn't important. What was important was the return of Mark Fitzpatrick. Steve Carmazan has this dramatic story. For the first time since last April, Mark Fitzpatrick played a game in the NHL. A rare muscle and tissue disorder that swells the limbs kept him out of action until a brief stint in the minors in February. But playing with the Islanders again was special. This is a big goal for me to be back right now. I always kept an optimistic mind to, to, to try and make it back and play at least one NHL game this year. Which he did Saturday night. Despite losing, he played well, including these two brilliant saves and here stopping the NHL's leading goal scorer, Brett Hall. He's got his quickness back. I don't think he's at 100%, uh, obviously. He says it's 80 to 90%, but he's been sharp. I mean, he's, he's very intimidating. But that's hardly a word to describe Fitzpatrick when the illness began to affect him in training camp. I hate to say it, but that wasn't Mark Fitzpatrick in training camp. Uh, it was like, it was like uh, he was there, but his body wasn't. And, you know, of course, that kind of hampered his play. And as the Islanders' season wore on, his teammates began to think Fitzpatrick's season was over. The way the doctors had it and the way he was and uh, being home most of the year, you know, you don't really expect anyone to come back from that. But, uh, you know, he's fought hard and he's come back through a lot of adversity and uh, I give him a lot of credit. You know, he, he's fought back this far and, uh, you know, I'm just happy for him to be back in the lineup, you know, and I'm sure he's excited about it and uh, we're excited for him. Steve Carmazan, Sports Channel. Defenseman Gary Nyland was happy for his teammate and praised his overall play, saying Fitzpatrick, quote, played a damn fine game. Even Blues coach Brian Sutter was moved by Fitzpatrick's return, telling reporters, quote, for a kid to come off an illness that was not only career-threatening but life-threatening, well, I was glad to see him out there. I was very impressed. Even after playing a full NHL game, Fitzpatrick was brimming with energy. Quote, Physically, I don't feel tired right now, and I think that's a very positive sign. I feel really energetic. I could probably play a few more periods. Mentally, I think I was a little nervous the first couple of minutes. I just needed a few shots on goal to calm down a bit. I said to myself halfway through the first period, it's just like any other game. I played 47 last year. But it wasn't just any game. It was a return to normalcy for a player whose last year had been anything but. Quote, it's the little things that I don't take for granted. Getting up in the morning and going to the rink. I appreciate it more now than I ever did. Fitzpatrick compared his ordeal to a marathon and that, quote, to finally make it to the finish line, it's such a great feeling. But there were other finish lines to cross. He still required medication to keep the swelling down, and his lawsuit against Shoadenko was still pending. And as a competitor, deep down, Fitzpatrick probably wanted to get an NHL win on his record again. That would finally happen on March 30th, 1991, against the Boston Bruins. On Fan Appreciation Night, where spectators were each handed a pair of Islanders sunglasses, Mark Fitzpatrick made 27 saves in a 5-3 win over Boston, a sliver of hope in an otherwise hopeless season for the Islanders. Tom Fitzgerald and Hubie McDonough each scored twice, but it was Fitzpatrick, winning his first game in a year, who was the feel-good story for the evening, and in some ways, the season. Perhaps the most encouraging moment of the year took place in the final home game of the season. On that night, goalie Mark Fitzpatrick recorded his first victory of the year, defeating the Adams Division champion, Boston Bruins. He stopped 33 shots that night 
but more importantly, scored a stunning triumph over a mysterious disease that nearly ended his career. 23 seconds left. Pullen puts it in the goal mouth and it's cleared aside. Brad Lauer up ahead to McDonough with an empty net. This will do it. It had been a long year, but with illness and adversity now behind them, these determined New York Islanders face the future with optimism and anticipation. The Islanders' season officially ended the next night with another win against New Jersey. But that would close the book on one of the most disappointing and disjointed seasons in franchise history. Finishing in last place in the Patrick Division, the Isles had the third worst record in the NHL and was the league's lowest scoring team. It was the earliest they had been eliminated from the playoffs since their dreadful expansion year of 1972-73. But things were even worse than that. Their star players still wanted a trade, their Hall of Fame coach was pondering retirement, and the team was up for sale but could find no takers. They were stuck in a home arena that was hopelessly out of date and with a lease that generated almost nothing in terms of revenue for them. Their minor league team was also bereft of talent and had trudged through a disastrous season of their own. This was the nadir of the Islanders' existence to that point. Even in their early expansion days, there was at least a little hope for the future. But in the new NHL of the 1990s, there were no Dennis Potvans, Clark Gillies, or Brian Trottiers walking in the door. After the break, the Islanders' 1991-92 season starts with losing a goalie, two major trades, and a flare-up that once again threatens Mark Fitzpatrick's road back to the NHL. Training camp for the 1991-92 Islanders opened up on September 6, 1991 in Lanningsburg, New York, near the team's minor league affiliate in Troy. Aside from the location, not a ton had changed in their status. The club was still for sale, with Pickett asking for $100 million. Not only was the price high for a depreciated asset, but the NHL had no national television contract at the time, meaning any potential buyers were looking at a big-time money loser. GM Bill Torrey had made only one trade over the summer, and it wasn't who everyone expected. Pat LaFontaine was still an Islander as of camp, but rugged defenseman Craig Ludwig had been traded for offensive-minded blue liner Tom Curvers. The swap was akin to plugging a leaky dam with a wad of bubblegum, and hardly the only upgrade the Islanders needed. Al Arbor had decided against retirement, returning for a 17th year behind the bench. But young goalie Jeff Hackett, who had shown flashes of talent during the previous jumbled season, was lost in the summer's expansion draft, having been selected first by the brand new San Jose Sharks. Months earlier, the Islanders had a chance to trade Hackett for scoring winger Mike Gartner, but Torrey turned the deal down, electing to keep their third goalie instead. Now they had lost him for nothing, leaving the crease to the returning tandem of Glenn Healy and Mark Fitzpatrick. For the latter, the fact that Torrey had chosen to protect him in the expansion draft meant a lot. Fitzpatrick told Newsday, quote, I'm really pleased. It showed a lot of confidence in me. I know the team hasn't given up on me. In May, Fitzpatrick reported that he had stopped taking the prednisone and had experienced no flare-ups of the eosinophilia myalgia syndrome. He was able to spend the summer between his home in British Columbia and Long Island, exercising, playing golf, and skating. But on the eve of training camp 1991, Fitzpatrick's status took a step backward. He had experienced a flare-up of EMS symptoms, including soreness and fatigue, plus some swelling in his leg. Quote, 
It was like someone punctured me with a needle and sucked all the energy right out of my body. That's how it feels. Your major muscles swell up. Your whole body feels stiff and sore and tired. You have virtually no range of motion. Nobody has any use for a goaltender who can't move. The flare-up was a blow to the 22-year-old, who had expected to come into camp ready to take a regular role on the Islanders again. He hoped to at least join the team for camp, but after taking his physical, Fitzpatrick was held back on Long Island for more tests. Although he was in otherwise fine physical shape, team doctors and physicians from University Hospital in Stony Brook paused his training out of concern about the swelling and other issues, including an increase in white blood cells. In the meantime, the Islanders needed a new backup goalie. So Bill Torrey turned to 33-year-old former Ranger, Whaler, and Canuck Steve Weeks. Weeks had played just one NHL game the season before and had spent most of the campaign in the minors, where his record was a mediocre 16-19-0. Beggars couldn't be choosers, and with Weeks' old Rangers teammate Don Maloney, now Torrey's assistant GM, there was a match to be made. On September 11th, 1991, Mark Fitzpatrick was officially sidelined indefinitely by the Islanders following his examinations. His case of eosinophilia myalgia syndrome was diagnosed as chronic by Dr. Kaufman, who said that the acerbations are a common occurrence in patients. In the short term, that meant that Fitzpatrick would not be joining his teammates at camp. Doctors put him on a regimen of therapeutic loosening exercises for his once again swollen limbs. He also had to return to taking the prednisone. Doctors told Fitzpatrick that taking doses of the cortisone-like drug over long periods of time could cause softened bones and cataracts, but for the goalie, it was the only choice. He told reporters, quote, It's almost like I've got my back to the wall and I don't have a bunch of other options. The setback was doubly painful, as Fitzpatrick had his heart set on starting camp on the right foot after his hellish previous season. Quote, I've been looking forward to training camp ever since I got sick last year. I wanted to put it past me and start fresh. But there is a door in front of me now, and I'm going to do the best I can to try and open it. Staying positive was still a key component to managing the EMS, and Fitzpatrick wasn't going to let this latest obstacle get in his way. Quote, it might take a while, but it's only training camp right now. I hope to be back before too long. About a week after that disappointing prognosis, Fitzpatrick was back at camp with the Islanders, doing some light skating and playing tennis away from the rink. Over the next two weeks, the goalie felt progressively better, and by the end of September 1991, the Islanders were able to assign him to Capital District in the AHL for conditioning. Fitzpatrick was still very much in the Islanders' plans, but getting him back up to game speed would take time. Al Arbor told Newsday of the conditioning plan, quote, We want to do this in an intelligent fashion. We don't want to overload him at once. So the Islanders started the season once again without Mark Fitzpatrick. But he wasn't the only one who was elsewhere. Star center Pat LaFontaine was now officially a holdout, having been unable to come to a resolution with the team on a new contract that would have increased his pay to be more equal with players of his status. His agent Don Meehan said that LaFontaine had no intention of joining the Islanders and that, quote, there's nothing that the ownership has conveyed to me that would make Patty change his mind. This might come as a great shock, but the Islanders also had a new problem. Center Brent Sutter, team's jack-of-all-trades captain and the last remaining link to the Stanley Cup-winning teams of the early 80s, was also unhappy with the state of things. The 29-year-old wanted to play for a contender, not a floundering former champion, and his guarded comments on LaFontaine's holdout and the season ahead spoke volumes. 
Sutter told Newsday at the end of camp, quote, At this time, I don't want to say too much. I want to see what happens. I'll take it day by day, and then I'll take it from there. What's on my mind right now is getting back to playing, and wherever it may be, that's where it's going to be. It's hard to blame either player for their feelings. LaFontaine was a 50-goal scorer and one of the most electrifying players in the NHL. He should have been paid like a star. Sutter was a two-time cup champion and a guy who was capable of scoring 30 goals and 60 points in a season while also playing a smart, dedicated defensive checking role. Ironically, they ended up opposing each other on the ice at that summer's Canada Cup tournament, with LaFontaine suiting up for Team USA and Sutter for Team Canada. Both deserve better than a directionless patchwork team playing on a crumbling building for a cheap absentee owner. Despite Arbor and Torrey's hard work and loyalty over the previous decades, the Islanders started the 1991-92 season as a team going absolutely nowhere. Somehow, without LaFontaine, they shockingly got the season started with a big win, taking down Ray Bork and the Boston Bruins in a fight-filled 4-3 victory at Boston Garden. Brent Sutter even scored a goal. Meanwhile, in Troy, New York, Mark Fitzpatrick made 28 saves in a 4-3 win over New Haven. Islanders goalie coach Billy Smith was in attendance and liked what he saw, telling reporters that the Capital District Islanders, quote, would have been in a lot of trouble if not for Fitzpatrick. It was a good first step, and after going 2-0-1 with a 2.27 goals against average in three games in the American League, Fitzpatrick was recalled to the big club. To that point, the Islanders had dropped two straight and were a mushy 2-3-1 in their first five games. On October 19, 1991, Fitzpatrick started for the Islanders against the Edmonton Oilers, but was on the losing end of a 4-2 score. The score and the crowd of less than 8,000 people at Nassau Coliseum were disappointing, but for the goalie, just being back and starting was an accomplishment. Even the unlucky game-winning goal, which bounced off of Fitzpatrick's chest and into the net early in the third period, wasn't enough to shake his growing confidence. Quote, The main thing about just having gone through something like this is that it's going to help me. I've come to terms with this now. It's something I'm probably going to have to play through for the rest of my life. Even Oilers coach Ted Green was impressed by the young goalie's performance, saying, quote, they've got a good future here with that kid. And then everything changed. In one day, GM Bill Torrey made two monumental trades that radically reshaped his team and altered the Islanders for years to come. On October 25th, 1991, Torrey sent LaFontaine, his holdout star, plus defenseman Randy Hiller and forward Randy Wood to Buffalo for young, rangy center Pierre Turgeon, forwards Benoit Hogue and Dave McIlwain, and defenseman Uwe Krupp. On the same day, Torrey also sent Islanders captain Brent Sutter and forward Brad Lauer to Chicago for forwards Steve Thomas and Adam Creighton. Within 24 hours, the Islanders were a different team, and two talented but unhappy veterans were swapped out for new blood that wanted a chance to establish themselves in a new environment. Turgeon, Thomas, and Creighton all had big scoring seasons followed by frustrating drafts. With the Islanders, each would get a chance to show they weren't a fluke. That was a risk Torrey was willing to take because his team needed a jolt in the worst way. Winless in six games and only three, five, and two on the season, the Islanders were running the risk of washing away another season before it even got started. In the second game after the upheaval, they lost to Brent Sutter and the Blackhawks on a heartbreaking goal with a minute and 14 seconds left in the third. They would only win two of their first seven games after the trades, a disappointing result following a few days of excitement. For Mark Fitzpatrick, 
any excitement would have to wait. Another biopsy, this time to track the results of medication on his EMS, left stitches on his leg that would have to be removed before he could play again. As he waited for that and the results of the tests, Fitzpatrick braced for bad news and the chance that he might not play again anytime soon. When the results came back, on a day the Islanders were outclassed 7-4 by the Capitals, the tests showed that very little change had occurred in Fitzpatrick's condition. The EMS not getting worse was good news, but not getting better wasn't great either. Out of caution, the Islanders chose to slow down Fitzpatrick's training and keep it all off the ice for the time being. Team trainer Ed Taberski told Newsday, quote, We're looking to come back real slow and see how he does. We want to explore the possibility of different therapies. By the end of November, and about a week before his 23rd birthday, Fitzpatrick was assigned back to Capital District for conditioning. Playing in the AHL would allow him to come along slowly and be monitored by team doctors and coaches. At the same time, the big club was just a mess. The trades hadn't provided an immediate spark as hoped for, and the goaltending had become an issue. Glenn Healy started 13 of the team's 14 games, but was pulled in the second period of three straight contests. Steve Weeks came in to relieve Healy in all three games, and eventually won back-to-back starts versus the Devils and Rangers, respectively, becoming the first goalie to ever win games for both the Islanders and their big city rival. A winless Western road trip, in which they were outscored 15-6, was a major early blow to the season. The cherry on top was Healy suffering a finger injury, leaving Weeks and rookie Danny Lorenz as the Islanders' goalie tandem. Despite being in the minors, Mark Fitzpatrick signed a two-year contract extension with the Islanders worth $250,000 plus an option year. The team still had him in their future plans, and with a new medicine program that included methotrexate, an arthritis drug, in place of the prednisone, there was hope that any long off-side effects would be minimized once his EMS was under control. After the drug switch, Fitzpatrick felt fatigued enough to be held out of practice. But after a few days, he began to feel better enough to play a few periods in the AHL, where he knew he'd be until he was good and ready. He told Newsday, quote, They've more or less told me I'm my own doctor now. If I feel I can play three games in three nights, I'll play them. If I can only play two of them, then that's what I'll do. The goalie also felt grateful to the Islanders' leadership for supporting him on his journey and extending his contract. Quote, I can't say enough about Bill Torrey and Al Arbor, about how they've been patient with me. I certainly am confident I'm going to beat this thing, and I'm certain I'm going to return the favor. While Fitzpatrick worked on his game and on himself in the AHL, the Islanders' crease was surprisingly being held down by Steve Weeks. In the span of about a month, from mid-November to mid-December 1991, Weeks put together a 5-2-2 stretch that helped stabilize the Islanders, kept them in something resembling a playoff hunt, and gave Glenn Healy time to heal his broken finger. The oldest player on the roster, Weeks's wandering, scrambly style wasn't perfect, but he was, as Ray Ferraro called him, quote, the ideal goaltender for our situation here. And the reason why is a cliche, but it's true. He's a real professional. Al Arbor went even further, calling Weeks, quote, a godsend, and telling the New York Times, quote, he's the type of person who's already faced everything through the course of his career. The Islanders went 3-6-3 three, and three in December to finish the calendar year 12-18-6. They were in fifth place in the Patrick Division, and 12 points out of the final playoff berth. 
Wins always seem to be followed by a short string of losses, instantly killing any momentum they might have. There were lots of injuries, but even before that, the roster simply wasn't that good. In the New York Times, Joe LaPointe asked at the season's midway point, quote, Is Bill Torrey's team so bad because uninterested absentee ownership refused to let him spend the money and make the trades and build the scouting staff that had been needed dearly in a long decline? Or is it so bad because Torrey reached the peak of his management skills a decade ago when he won the Stanley Cup four consecutive seasons in a different era? But they were about to get a boost from a familiar face. Mark Fitzpatrick was recalled from Capital District in early January after going 6-5-1 with a 2.99 goals against average in his latest AHL conditioning stint. He was still taking his new medication and needed to see a specialist before he could be declared fit to start a game. He would admit later to feeling about 90% as sharp as he used to. On one of his bad days, the number might be closer to 70% or worse. But Fitzpatrick leaned into his new reality and adjusted his style. He told Sports Illustrated, quote, Instead of relying on my hand-eye coordination, now I try to come out and challenge the shooter a little more. I'll try to block off more of an angle so I'm not forced to use my reflexes as much. Before, I would hang back in the net and know that I was quick enough to make a save. Now I try to adjust around the illness because some things aren't the same as they once were. He did eventually get into some NHL action, relieving Steve Weeks in a blowout loss to St. Louis, and after going down 3-0 in an eventual 4-3 loss to Philadelphia. Fitzpatrick told Newsday, quote, I felt a lot more comfortable the second game. Al told me last week I'd be getting a chance to start soon. I've been working hard and looking forward to the opportunity. That opportunity would finally come on January 14, 1992, in a game against Detroit. Fitzpatrick made 21 saves in a 6-2 win over a pretty darn good Red Wings squad, and the jolt his return gave his teammates was palpable. Al Arbor said afterwards, quote, Fitzy made some key saves at the right time, and that just lifts and keeps picking up our hockey club. Forward Hubie McDonough, who had four points in the win, told reporters, quote, I'm not taking anything away from the other goaltenders, because they all played well too. But when Fitzy is back there, everybody seems to get confident. He is a good, solid goalie who makes the big saves. We were inspired. He fought off a lot to come back. The game was just the fourth NHL start for Fitzpatrick since his EMS diagnosis almost 18 months earlier, and his first win since that emotional victory over Boston the previous March. The disease would never fully recede, but Fitzpatrick was feeling better than ever, and even his doctors agreed. The fatigue and swollen appendages and joints had all but disappeared, and the always optimistic 23-year-old said he could feel the condition, quote, leaving my system. Even after shutting down Eisenman, Fedorov, and company for a full game, Fitzpatrick told Newsday, quote, Right now, I feel like I can go out and play another 20 minutes. Although it was a small crowd of just 8,277, typical for the Islanders at the time, fans at the game gave Fitzpatrick a warm ovation, and that was very meaningful. He told the New York Times, quote, I am always optimistic. I never lost confidence, even at the worst time when things looked dim. I say a lot of prayers. I've had a lot of mail. People say, hang in there. Islanders fans and just hockey fans. The goalie and his team kept up their momentum with a win over the Flyers two nights later. Fitzpatrick made 30 saves, including stopping Mike Ricci on a breakaway. And the Islanders clawed back after giving up two goals in the first three shots. It was a pleasant way for the team to go into the All-Star break. 
While Ray Ferraro was the Lone Islanders rep on the Prince of Wales Conference All-Star team, Fitzpatrick was put on the ballot by the NHL. Instead of playing, the goalie would do a TV interview about EMS and his road back that aired during the game. He also used the break to return to Troy, New York, to pick up his belongings and bring them back to Long Island for the rest of the season. In an insanely ironic twist, Fitzpatrick noticed a familiar vehicle disabled on the side of the road just past a toll booth. He made a U-turn and stopped to help the driver, who was Islanders teammate Dennis Vasky. That's a save you don't see every day. Fitzpatrick started the Islanders' first game back after the All-Star break, but they weren't able to overcome a 3-0 deficit and lost 4-3 to the Maple Leafs. They next split a home-at-home duo against the Penguins, losing the first game 5-3 on Yarmir Yager's game-winning goal with less than a minute remaining, then winning the dramatic rematch 8-5. With a 6-2 lead midway through the third, the Islanders allowed the Penguins to creep back in. Fitzpatrick made 19 saves on a ridiculous 22 shots in the period by Pittsburgh, and the Islanders hung on for their first win over the Penguins in four tries that season. The start was Fitzpatrick's fifth straight. He would make it six straight with a 5-5 tie against the Flyers on the night of Dennis Potvin's number retirement on February 1, 1992. Fitzpatrick admitted afterwards that he wasn't fatigued, but wasn't sharp in the game either. Before their flight out to their upcoming road trip, he got some tips from goalie coach Billy Smith, who was in town for the Potvin ceremony. Fitzpatrick leaned on the four-time cup winner for more than just technical advice. Quote, he was probably one of the strongest goalies mentally ever to play the game and he gives me pointers in that regard. Fitzpatrick's string of starts was already a victory, but the Islanders game on February 5th, 1992 was even more special. Returning to Los Angeles for the first time since he was hospitalized a year and a half earlier, Fitzpatrick made 33 saves in a 2-1 Islanders win over the Kings at the Fabulous Four. As an extra bonus, Fitzpatrick outdueled Kelly Rudy, the man he was traded for over three years earlier. Al Arbor called it Fitzpatrick's best game of the season and said that he began to look like his old self again. Quote, he looked sharp. A lot of other games, he made a lot of saves, but this time he was alert. You could see it right there. For the often taciturn Arbor, who became the second winningest coach in NHL history with the victory, that counted as effusive praise. Of course, for Fitzpatrick, the victory meant more than just another tick in the win column. Quote, this is where I was diagnosed, and after that bad memory... It's good to have a night like this and come out with a good man. With Glenn Healy fully back from the thumb injury that had forced him to miss most of January, the Islanders finally had their expected goalie tandem up and running, and it resulted in a 5-1-1 streak that kept them at least marginally in a playoff hunt and set up a big Valentine's Day showdown with the Rangers at Madison Square Garden. But the run came to a crashing halt with the Islanders getting blown out 9-2. Fitzpatrick was pulled in the third period after giving up a second goal to Darren Turcott, making the score 7-1. to He was replaced by Healy, who gave up a hat-trick goal to Adam Graves 15 seconds later. It was that kind of night. The Islanders shook that disaster off and reeled off four straight wins, with Arbor alternating Fitzpatrick and Healy and each picking up two victories. The former made 29 saves in an exciting 5-4 overtime win over Winnipeg, in which the Islanders were down 3-1 entering the third. King and Murray collide in center ice. Hibbing becoming interesting, to say the least. And Olison will drive it right back in. Of course, Hibbing is a wake-up call sometimes. Out in front, McDermott, and a great save by Mark 
Fitzpatrick. Beautiful stabbing save off a quick wrist shot by Paul McDermott. Took a nice pass again. The Islanders run into trouble in their own end of the ice. There's the pass. There's the shot. Mark Fitzpatrick ready. Waiting for it. Snapped it up. There, the Islanders mishandle it. Dennis Vasky overskated it. The pass to McDermott. And the wrist shot. You can see how back in the net Mark Fitzpatrick was. That gives him just a half a second. A split second longer look at the puck. Well, there's a break of the action. And ought to be a great time to break for the great taste of Bud Light. Fitzpatrick's 30 saves and a 2-1 win over the Minnesota North Stars helped the Islanders reach NHL 500 for the first time since October, which was a major psychological bump for the squad. Their larger 14-6-1 streak also put them just three points behind Pittsburgh for fourth place in the Patrick division. But once again, the momentum was short-lived. A 4-1 loss to the Flyers was a reality check and extended their winless streak in Philadelphia to 15 games dating back to 1987. Mark Recchi, making his Flyers debut after being traded by the Penguins, had a goal and two assists. Still, the duo of Healy and Fitzpatrick allowed Bill Torrey to trade former godsend Steve Weeks to Los Angeles for a seventh-round draft pick. Weeks had gone 9-4-2 for the Islanders earlier that season, but was now the third wheel in the crease. Until fate intervened yet again in the first days of March 1991. Warning. If you are disturbed by tales of gore, you might want to skip ahead a few seconds. Ready? Okay. When fighting off a shot in practice, the tip of Glenn Healy's index finger was severed and had to be reattached by doctors with a skin graft. It was the third finger injury Healy had sustained in the same season, and by far the most gruesome. Trainer Ed Taberski, who attended immediately to Healy after the incident, told Newsday, quote, When I saw the finger, my concern was... Where's the other part? It was inside his glove. Gross. Healy would miss three weeks to a month of time, once again upsetting the team's goaltending plans. Danny Lorenz was called up from Capital District, and Mark Fitzpatrick, just three months after coming back from a debilitating blood disease that cost him a season and a half of playing time, was now the starting goalie for an NHL club. And with just 16 games remaining in the season, the Islanders didn't have a lot of time to waste if they wanted to make the playoffs. For Fitzpatrick, that meant facing off against top competition. On March 3, 1992, not only did he get the start on the night the team retired Mike Bossy's number 22 to the rafters, but it was also against the Montreal Canadiens and Patrick Waugh. Cole Spice now brings you the goaltending matchup and goal for the Montreal Canadiens. Who else but Patrick Rouard? Played uh, last game was Saturday night, a 5-3 loss to the Los Angeles Kings. He has 33 wins already this season. He started 55 of Montreal's 67 games this year. And for the New York Islanders, you look at Mark Fitzpatrick in the record of 6-8-1 on the season with a 3.37 goals against average. With Glenn Healy out of the lineup, a lot of the work will fall on this young man's shoulders. Although the opportunity he was hoping for had finally arrived, Fitzpatrick's run as a starter got off to a sluggish start, with three straight losses and a tie. Although his numbers were often good, 25 saves on 29 shots in the bossy night game against Montreal, 38 saves on 42 shots against Chicago two nights later, the Islanders simply couldn't pick up any ground and remained four points behind the fourth-place Penguins. Fitzpatrick snapped his slump with a 6-2 win over Buffalo, 
in which he made 37 saves and stopped former teammate Pat LaFontaine on a breakaway. They followed that up with a 6-2 win over Philadelphia, which was Al Arbor's 700th victory as a head coach. Fitzpatrick talked after the game about how the coach had helped him through his ordeal and returned to the NHL, and the personal touch Arbor brought to the bench. Quote, Every day he'll ask how I'm feeling. If he sees something bothering me, he'll find out what it is. A 6-2 home loss to the Penguins put a massive dent in the Islanders' playoff push and left them six points back with 11 games to play. The Islanders would need to be good and lucky in equal measure if they were to sneak into the postseason. Fitzpatrick was still doing his part for the push, including making 38 saves and a 4-1 home win over Buffalo. It was their second win over the Sabres in a week, with Fitzpatrick making a total of 75 saves between the two. Arbor called him out specifically, saying, quote, Fitzy bailed us out continually. Also impressed with the performance was Pat LaFontaine, who was making his return to Nassau Coliseum for the first time since his trade to Buffalo back in October. The former Islander was booed and jeered mercilessly by 10,000-plus fans throughout the game, but he took time afterward to talk to reporters about the opposing goal. Quote, I tip my hat to Mark. He seems to have sparked their team. I really admire him for what he's been through. Mark's a great guy, and I'm happy to see him doing well. He certainly shut us down pretty well for two games. The vibes after that game were good, but they weren't enough. Fitzpatrick made 35 saves in a 5-2 loss to Washington that was his 100th career NHL game and was full of tough breaks. Cap scored twice in 18 seconds in the first period, and after the Islanders came back to tie the game, a puck ricocheted off the left post, hit the back of Fitzpatrick's pads, and bounced into the net. The Islanders never recovered, and their playoff push took another huge hit. Winger Derek King said afterwards of the go-ahead goal, quote, It was just one of those goals. He was standing on his head, and all of a sudden, one goal like that goes in. We should have been able to bounce back from that. But from right then, they came back at us, and it showed on the scoreboard. At six points back with nine games to go, things were getting tight. A 1-1 tie against the Rangers, in which Fitzpatrick made 30 often spectacular saves and dueled John Van Beesbrook to a draw, got them a point. In a tight-checking game, the goals were few and the hits were many. And in the final minute of overtime, both teams had chances to win. Comes Turchon across the line. Thomas to the right. Turchon shoots, save, and Eastbrook. Rebound! Hit the post! Steve Thomas hit the post! He had the chance to win it. 15 seconds to go. Amaki moves in. Cuts it against Finley. Saved by Fitzpatrick as he answers back on his end. Five seconds to go. Messier's got the puck. Messier banned on the pass. Centers. It's deflected out of the zone. It's a 1-1 tie. Oh, that was a beauty. But the Penguins picked up two points on the same night, and the Islanders actually lost ground. A 2-2 tie against the Devils, who were winless in their last seven, felt in Fitzpatrick's own words, quote, like a loss. Devils defenseman Ken Danico thought the young Islanders goalie who made a ridiculous 43 saves in the game, had nothing to be ashamed of, telling reporters, quote, I think Fitzpatrick stole a point for them. Overall, the Islanders' playoff push was more of a slow-motion slide into oblivion. On March 24th, a 5-2 loss to the Quebec Nordiques, of all teams, was basically the final nail on their coffin. Newsday's Mark Herman said the Islanders played the, quote, terminally floundering Nords with, quote, all the gusto of someone hitting the snooze button. But that was nothing compared to the anger of Al Arbor, whose voice was so loud in the locker room after the game that he could be heard in the Nassau Coliseum hallway. 
The coach eventually told reporters, quote, I'm ashamed of them. They should be because I sure am after a showing like that. For a club supposedly going for the playoffs, regardless of the odds, it's hard to believe. I guess it shows the makeup of some of the players isn't what we thought it would be. Fitzpatrick made 20 saves on 25 shots and didn't absolve himself of blame. Quote, after a game like this, we should be embarrassed. I'm embarrassed about the way I played. The 0-2-2 skid took any wind out of the Islanders' sails in their quest for the playoffs. So, of course, they then won two straight, a 7-4 blowout of the expansion San Jose Sharks and a 4-1 win over the Rangers. Fitzpatrick made 20 saves in that one and came one unfortunate bounce off of Uwe Krupp's skate from picking up a shutout. As disappointing as the season was, the Islanders were 4-2-1 against their rivals that year and were on an 8-0-2 streak at home against them. Even Fitzpatrick was confused by the disparity between his team's play against the Rangers versus the rest of the NHL, telling Newsday, quote, I don't understand why we can't play the other games the same way. He was probably just as confused after his next start, in which he made 37 saves on 43 shots and a 6-2 loss to Detroit. There was another game in which Fitzpatrick was one of just a few Islanders, if not the only Islander, to actually show up. On April 1st, 1992, just before the end of the regular season, NHL players went on strike. After 10 days and 30 canceled games, the season resumed with players gaining increased playoff bonuses and control over their own licensing, along with some changes to free agency and an 84-game regular season. It wouldn't be the last time the NHL got shut down over labor strife, but it would be the only time a work stoppage was initiated by the players. For some teams, the short break gave them time to rest before the playoffs. For the Islanders, it just delayed the inevitable end to a season that was already far off the rails. The Islanders went 2-0-1 after the strike, including a 7-0 route of New Jersey in the last game of the season. Steve Thomas scored four goals to finish with 28 on the season. Benoit Hogue had 30, Pierre Turgeon had 38, and both Ray Ferraro and Derek King finished with 40. But a lack of depth scoring, scattershot defense, tons of injuries, and general inconsistency not to mention two major trades and a perpetual state of instability, all contributed to a season that never quite got on track. They finished an appropriate 34-35-11 for 79 points and 5th place in the Patrick Division. They weren't terrible that season, they just weren't particularly good either. Soon after the season ended, things already started looking up. Four new minority owners were set to take over the team's day-to-day operation from absentee owner John Pickett. The LaFontaine and Sutter sagas were over, and the newcomers had settled in. Overseas prospects like Vladimir Malikov and Zygmunt Palfi were a year closer to playing in the NHL. And Al Arbor would be back behind the bench. Coach told Newsday's Mark Herman, quote, The turmoil has kind of subsided. We seem to be headed in the right direction. Glenn Healy said after the All-Star break, as they compiled the second-best record in the league, the Islanders gained, quote, a whole lot of respect and self-confidence. Another major reason for the Islanders to be excited for the next season was the return of a healthy Mark Fitzpatrick. While the team's final record wasn't what anyone wanted, the 23-year-old goalie felt encouraged by his recovery and strong finish to the season, in which he started 12 of the Islanders' final 14 games. His final stat line for the season was solid. 11 wins, 13 losses, and 5 ties. His 9.02 save percentage was good for 5th in the NHL, and his 3.20 goals against average was tied for 9th among all NHL goalies with at least 30 starts. 
Fitzpatrick's save percentage put him just ahead of all-stars like Kirk McLean and Mike Richter, something that would have seemed impossible just 18 months earlier. On June 16, 1992, Mark Fitzpatrick was awarded the NHL's Bill Masterton Trophy for perseverance and dedication to hockey. Fitzpatrick overcame a rare blood disorder that threatened to take his entire career away and returned to be a starting goalie in the world's top professional hockey league once again. It was a remarkable achievement and an inspiring story that extended beyond hockey. Fitzpatrick was the second youngest winner of the award behind 22-year-old Bobby Clark, who had won it exactly 20 years earlier. As his journey made its way back to the NHL, more and more people learned of Fitzpatrick's story, and he became the most prominent face of EMS and a beacon to others who were suffering from it. He was open to anyone who asked him about his medications, diet, exercise, and positive outlook, that were all major aspects of his recovery. The Long Island-based athlete received calls and letters from all over the country from other EMS patients and became a focal point for an entire pre-internet support network. He told Newsday, quote, If one person can benefit, a person with EMS or some other disease, I certainly want to help them. A lot of people were there for me, and now things have turned around for me. Obviously, there are lots of cases that are much more severe than mine. One woman who suffered from EMS so badly that she was all but confined to her home in Ontario said of Fitzpatrick, quote, When you see somebody get up after having the rug pulled out from under them, you think it can happen for you, too. EMS patients weren't the only ones in awe of Fitzpatrick's comeback. Islanders captain Pat Flatley told Sports Illustrated, quote, A lot of people don't realize how acutely sick he was. He has to fight every day. It's inspiring. Ironically, there was a specific way in which Islanders fans made Fitzpatrick feel normal again. After a year, that was anything but. They booed him during games. To him, the jeers meant he was just a regular player again, no different from any other Islander. Quote, If I make a mistake out there, I don't expect people to feel sorry for me. I expect a lot from myself, and I expect the fans to expect a lot from me as well. That's the bottom line. Just going out and doing the same things everybody else can. After a frightening and fraught two seasons, Mark Fitzpatrick carved out a very good career for himself as an NHL goalie. He went 17-15-5 in 1992-93 and was a key part of the Islanders' resurgent season and run to that season's Prince of Wales Conference Final, where they lost to the eventual Stanley Cup champion Montreal Canadiens. After that season, he was traded to Quebec for goalie Ron Hextall and then taken by the Florida Panthers in the expansion draft. He spent five years with Florida and was with them for their improbable run to the Cup Final in 1996. Fitzpatrick finished his career with short stints with Tampa Bay, Chicago, and Carolina. He played a few games for the Detroit Vipers of the International Hockey League and retired in 2001 at the age of 32. Mark Fitzpatrick wasn't the first Islander to win the Masterton Trophy, and he wouldn't be the last. The Bill Masterton Trophy was first dedicated in 1968 as a memorial to the former Minnesota North Star, who died that year after sustaining an injury during a game. In 1977, Islanders forward Ed Westfall became the first member of the franchise to win the Masterton. Ironically, the voting among the Professional Hockey Writers Association led to a tie between Westfall and King Star and future Islander Butch Goring. But a Board of Governors vote ended in Westfall's favor. The center was 36 years old at the time and had gone from winning two Stanley Cups with the Big Bad Bruins to being the leader of a ragtag expansion team in a weird suburban market. Rather than run from that challenge, the veteran embraced his new team and home and as captain 
helped quickly establish the Islanders as one of the NHL's best teams of that era. Back then, the, quote, player who best exemplifies the qualities of perseverance, sportsmanship, and dedication to hockey was usually an older player who had been around forever and was either still very good or at least very well-liked. These days, the Masterton is generally given to players who have overcome some hardship or adversity off the ice to make it back to the NHL. The most recent and no doubt most famous Islanders Masterton winner was goaltender Robin Leonard, who took home the award in 2019. The big Swede had shown flashes of talent with Ottawa and Buffalo, but struggled with mental illness and substance abuse behind the scenes. He entered rehab at the end of the 2018 season and emerged without a team to play for. The Islanders, still reeling from the loss of Captain John Tavares in free agency, also needed a new goalie and signed Leonard to a one-year deal. Before the season began, Leonard told his story to The Athletic, going public for the first time about his battle against bipolar disorder, alcoholism, and thoughts of suicide. After a few weeks of learning under new coach Barry Trotz and goalie coaches Mitch Korn and Piero Greco, Leonard went on an incredible run, splitting time with Thomas Grice and making the Islanders, who had been one of the worst defensive teams in the NHL the season before, into the league's stingiest club. The written-off team made the playoffs with their best season since the Dynasty era and earned their first series sweep in 30-plus years, with Leonard giving up just six goals in a four-game wipeout of the Pittsburgh Penguins. His on-ice excellence, combined with his openness about his struggles, made him a major part of the locker room and a folk hero among Islanders fans. And the love was mutual. Leonard and Grice won the Jennings Trophy for giving up the least amount of goals in the NHL, and Leonard was a finalist for the Masterton and for the Vezina Trophy as the league's best goalie. Although he finished third in the voting for the Vezina, he took home the Masterton and gave a stirring acceptance speech that won't be forgotten anytime soon. All my special teammates, um, you guys are amazing. And, uh, you know, I took that first step, got help, and uh, that was life-changing for me. And that's something uh, we got to keep uh, pushing for. We got to, you know, end the stigma. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I'm not ashamed to say I'm mentally ill. Uh, but that doesn't mean mentally weak. Leonard's time with the Islanders only lasted one season. He left in free agency a few weeks after that awards show after a contract impasse with GM Lou Lamorello. But the love affair continues, with Islander fans still rooting for him as a visiting player and Leonard getting a tattoo of Long Island on his neck as a way to remember, quote, a place that means the world to me. The Masterton Trophy is a lot like the Lady Bing Trophy. Both are maligned among NHL fans and writers as somehow being lesser than postseason award. But as in the case of Lady Bing, there's a lot more to it than just stats and votes. When you reread the stories of past Masterton winners, you live their journeys from the brink back to the NHL. For athletes who have trained all their lives to get to this level, to have that opportunity taken away by something out of their control can be a harrowing experience. Getting back to hockey is more than just about getting another paycheck. It means getting back to that thing you were meant to do after a life-changing ordeal. In some cases, they come back even better than before. Mark Fitzpatrick's career was nearly ended just as it was beginning by a disease that even doctors knew precious little about. But he fought back and was an NHL goalie again thanks to the powers of science and positive thinking. That's a lesson for anyone anywhere, no matter what their goal is. 
For more information about EMS and to support current patients and caregivers, contact the National Eosinophilia Myalgia Syndrome Network at nemsn.org. Islanders Award Winners is written, produced, and edited by Dan Saracini. Special thanks to Kevin Schultz. Visit Kevin's shop at VintageIceHockey.com, where you can get t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and more featuring over 100 classic hockey logos. Vintage Ice Hockey also has our Al Arbor t-shirt, and our portion of the sales go directly to the Center for Dementia Research. Be sure to visit LighthouseHockey.com every day and subscribe to Islanders Anxiety Podcasts. Sign up at Patreon.com slash Islanders Anxiety for even more. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Islanders Anxiety Podcasts are part of the Fans First Sports Network. To learn more, log on to fansfirstsports.com.